It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. Maybe you can relate. I have doubts about my faith. Doubts can send me spiraling backward, but they can also propel me forward in my journey with Jesus. Today, pastor, author, and apologist J.D. Greer joins us to talk about his new book, 12 Truths and a Lie, Answers to Life's Biggest Questions. In 12 Truths, J.D. takes on some of the most challenging questions he's fielded over the years and that he's also wrestled with. I love his honesty. You're going to love his honesty. J.D.'s the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. What would you prefer I refer to you as? Um, You know, Lord Dr. J.D. Greer, Ah, maybe. Pontifus Maximus. Yep, something like that. (laughs) All right, so J.D., so good to have you on the show. What inspired you to write this book, 12 Truths and a Lie? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because every book comes out of a story, you know, and for me, um, it's been really a series of difficult questions that I've struggled with as a pastor that honestly, I was afraid to verbalize out loud because you thought like, does this mean something's wrong with my faith? Does this mean that I'm just uh, not a, a good Christian because I have these kind of questions, secret doubts? And I remember um, several years ago when I began to verbalize some of these and just admit to people like, hey, I have this question. I know there's here's what the Bible says about it, but I still struggle with this. It it was amazing how many people came up to me and just said, you know, Pastor, I've had the exact same question. So what I've done is I I do a lot of stuff with college students. I'm on college campuses a lot. And sometimes we'll just do open Q&A. And so I've taken the most asked questions that I get from congregation members, college students, and just said, hey, let's just put these out there and let's talk about what the Bible says about them. Let's talk about where it could be difficult. And one of the most famous definitions of faith is that it's, it's faith seeking understanding. It's not faith that comes out of full understanding, but you're seeking it. And so what I hope 12 Truths and Lie does is helps give people a tether that guides them through some of the most difficult and also some of the most rewarding questions that you can ask. How did you come up with the questions? Yeah. So a lot of it was just kind of survey, you know, which which questions am I asked most frequently? You know, I referred a second ago to uh, being on college campuses. Um, Some of the campus ministries at at our local universities, UNC Chapel Hill, NC State, Duke University, they'll do a night where they just, you know, say, hey, come and Asked, uh, you know, they'll kind of bill me as the Bible expert, which is probably a pretty significant exaggeration. But, you know, just and, and let's do open mic. And, and so people, when they find out I do this, they're always like freaked out. They're like, oh, my goodness. Like, how could you do that with all these college students? Aren't you afraid they'll ask you stuff that you don't know? And I always say, you know, people only really ask about 10 different questions variations of 10. And once you learn the basic answers to those, then you could at least give people a a path to say, here's, here's how you can find understanding. So I just took those most popular questions and they range, you know, everything from how do I, how do I know God's will for my life to um, how can I be sure that I'll go to heaven to why does God care so much about my sex life uh, to how do I deal with some of the passages in the old Testament that seem to promote things that, that I find objectionable today. You know, how do I deal with, with difficult passages in the Old Testament? It's just a range of questions that, that, that are the most commonly asked questions I get. I did a podcast called Ask Me Anything, 
and I still do it, in fact. And I just once a week take a question from the congregation or, or, or somebody writes me with, and I just say, here's here's a pastoral answer to that question. And so we put those together in a book, and, and hopefully it's helpful for me. I know from your story that you you struggled a lot with doubting your salvation. That's a big mm-hmm. part of your story. And so, and that goes with one of the questions in the book. How do I know that I'm going to yeah. go to paradise when I die, go to heaven when <laughs> I die? So uh, talk about that journey in your life and how you, how you worked through that. Yeah. So it's interesting when you think about how God writes each of our stories, one of the things I opened the book up with is a statement from Charles Spurgeon, um, the famous 19th century British preacher who said, doubt is a foot poised to go forwards or backwards. Doubt can drive you backwards into despair and unbelief, but it's also true. You'll never take significant steps forward until you raise your foot. And many of us, we, we grow up in kind of a spoon fed Christian faith where we are regurgitating answers that we've heard in Sunday school back and we've never really thought deeply about them. And what God does is he puts us into a time of doubt where we have to pick up our foot. Now it's true that when you pick up your foot, you can go backwards into unbelief. But if you really want to go deep with the Lord, you have to ask some of these difficult questions. And for me, the first of those questions was, can a person really know for sure that they're going to go to heaven? I mean, you know, I grew up in a church where you prayed the prayer and you walked the aisle and you got baptized and you, you did the, you know, the whole rigmarole. And, but when it was when I was preparing to enter college that I was just like, I, how do I know? How can I know? And it led me through a terrible season of doubt, of just doubting everything from, am I saved to, can a person even know to, is there really, how do we know there's a God? And it was a difficult set of years. And in many ways, I, I would never want to go back through it. But God used that to, to actually give me a, a genuine, real relationship with him so that the trust I had in him coming out of that, clinging to him, was exponentially greater than the shallow thing that I had before I went into it. Um, I find a lot of people that even grew up in good churches, you know, Bible teaching churches, they had this question, how do I know that I'm saved? Can I know that I know? You know, I always say that uh, you know, if there were a Guinness Book of World's Records for how many times you could say the sinner's prayer, I hold that record because I prayed it. You know, during that that season, I prayed it probably every single week. You know, that the pastor gave an invitation. Um, there is a way that you could know, but but it, it requires getting into the scriptures and really doing some some deep soul and Bible searching. You're talking about in your experience, you're you know praying the sinner's prayer again and again and again, and you know, for an evangelical, that's. That's the, that's the prayer that gets you in the door of the kingdom. Right. If I'm praying that prayer again and again and again, I don't get the gospel because the gospel is not about what I do. It's about trusting in what Jesus has done. So there's almost a misunderstanding of the gospel when we're trying to do something yeah. to get God to love us. That's very well put because it makes me clear. Salvation is conversion is in many ways a it's a sinner's prayer you are calling out on jesus to be your lord and savior so i am not against the sinner's prayer i teach the sinner's prayer but what happens is people use that kind of rite of passage they use that prayer it's like a ritual you go through it's it's a ceremony that you participate in that you know is going to guarantee you salvation and the tragedy is that our overemphasis on that prayer ends up keeping assurance 
of salvation to some who should have it and then giving assurance to some people who shouldn't have it. Because ultimately, it's not really about a prayer. It's about a posture of the heart that is expressed in a prayer. I compare it to sitting down in a chair. You know, if if right before I sat down in a chair, I, you know, recited a soliloquy to the chair and said, oh, chair, thou art a you know, magnificent chair. And I believe you can hold the weight of my body. That's a sentimental, sweet thing to do to the chair. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what I say to the chair. It's, do I sit down in the chair? Ultimately, it's not the words that we say to Jesus that save us. It is whether or not we have surrendered to him as Lord and trusted in his finished work on the cross as our salvation. That is the faith that saves. Yes, it is usually expressed in a prayer, but ultimately it's the posture that saves, not the words of the prayer that save. I love the idea of the chair because you put your whole weight on the chair and that's what we do at the first. We put our whole weight onto Jesus, but I got to keep doing that myself. I got to put my full weight on Jesus every day. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and so to be clear, just because sometimes people can get a little fuzzy in the details, it's, it's not that we're getting saved over and over again. It's not that, you know, I, I keep like every day I get resaved, but really what salvation is, what conversion is, is it is assuming a posture to use the chair analogy. It is assuming a posture toward the finished work of Christ that you begin in a moment, but that you sustain for the rest of your life. You know, right now I'm actually seated in a chair and I would imagine you are too. If I were to ask you, how do you know for sure you have sat down in that chair? It's not because you remember the moment that you walked into the room you're in and sat down. The, the, the way that you know that you sat in the chair is the posture that you're in right now. You know, I say to people when they doubt their salvation, they're like, what? But I can't remember the words that I said. I don't know if I was sorry enough for my sin. You know, any number of variations as to why they doubt the moment. I always say to them, I'm like, well, what posture are you in right now? to the finished work of Christ? Are you in a posture of submission to him as Lord? Are you in a posture of, of trusting in his finished work? Well, then if so, then you're there because that's ultimately the posture that saves. It doesn't matter if you remember when you sat down in the finished work of Christ. What matters is that you're there now. So salvation is a posture that we assume at a point in life, and then we continue for the rest of our life. It's like the first time I sit in the chair, that's when I'm reborn, spiritually reborn. And I keep setting down on the chair because that's what helps me to grow up in my faith. There's this whole phenomenon of, of Christians deconstructing their faith and, you know, deconstructing to the point where they leave the faith. And, you know, this whole idea of doubting, you know, that's certainly falls in the realm of deconstructing, but we don't want to you know, throw everything out. We want to deconstruct in order to rebuild. So all that to say, one of the reasons, I just read an article by Tim Keller, one of the reasons that Christians are deconstructing and leaving the faith in that process is because evangelical Christianity has become so connected with, let's just be frank, Republican politics. Yeah, Dr. Keller and others who have commented on that, I think there's And there's a a great deal of truth in that. And I think we have to acknowledge at first that not all the impulses behind deconstruction are bad. Deconstruction is when you're trying to separate the truth of the gospel from whatever cultural and sometimes institutional trappings that we've associated with it that aren't necessarily inherent in the gospel. In some ways, you could say that what Jesus and Paul both do is they're deconstructing, in some ways, the gospel from 
a Judaistic, a legalistic Judaistic frame that that the Jewish nation had built around that. And so there's a good role for deconstruction where we have to ask questions like, okay, it's important for Christians to have convictions and to speak about righteousness and truth in our society. But where have we taken a secondary political agenda, um, even a good one, but a secondary one, and made that essential to the gospel and and thereby clouded the you know the truth and the simplicity of the gospel uh you know i think that's that's where a lot of this drive you know for for deconstruction actually comes from is is people asking that and the last two books that i've written one was called essential christianity and this one is called 12 truths and a lie is basically with a view toward people that are struggling through what are the essence what is the essence of the truth i've seen bad institutions i've seen Christianity co-opted into a political agenda that seems to associate things with it that, you know, maybe may or may not be good things, but but they're just not essential to to Jesus's message. Well, how do I separate one from the other? And how do I get this supracultural, this this intracultural gospel and and learn to express it in, in today's time and not just according to one you know, particular political movement? The gospel is going to critique both traditionally liberal and traditionally conservative politics, you know, in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's going to, it's going to commend certain things and it's going to criticize certain things. And ultimately God's people are not going to, should not be co-opted by any secular movement. We're not the children of the donkey or the elephant. We are the, the children of the lamb. Believe it or not, we have true followers of Jesus on both sides of the aisle. You know, and- <laughs> Yeah. And that's not to say, that's not to say we don't speak clearly, you know, when it comes to things like, I'm, you know, the sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, when it comes to like things like our concern for the poor, those are things that we don't compromise on. But it, it is true that that I can believe those things and maybe I'm going to look at certain political decisions about which candidate or even which party is the best one in this particular election. Um, that's something that while I may have my convictions about it, that's not something I want to associate necessarily with the authority of God. And uh, you know, one of the questions in 12 Truths and Lies, how do Christians handle political differences? How do you do this without compromising what the Bible actually teaches and standing on righteousness where you need to, you, when you need to speak out against injustice or against wickedness, like you know, things like abortion or those things? How can you do that with clarity and conviction without you know, being co-opted by, by a secondary worldly political agenda? Yeah, and Republicans tend to lean towards you know, the pro-life plank, and yet there are a lot of great social justice things within the Democratic Party. And someone right now is, you know, bristling over that, but both of those, <laughs> both of those are, are biblical values and they're in different parties in terms of emphasis. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm sure you're just somebody driving along right now yelling at the radio. Social justice means different things to different people. And, and unfortunately that term has turned into, you know, in many ways, a kind of a moniker for sometimes socialist and left-leaning programs. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a concern for the poor and a concern for those who have not benefited from the just structures in our society the way that others have. And any Christian should be concerned that justice be meted out equally for all and that a path forward for all people to move themselves from poverty to prosperity. We, We want that for everybody. And so, yes, you, you, there are people on the traditional left that whether or not the policies that they espouse are helpful, they care about that. 
And I think that's something we can affirm and say, hey, you care about the poor. That's fantastic. You care about justice. That's amazing. Now, now we can disagree on the best way to accomplish those things. We can all affirm Jesus's love for the oppressed and the poor and his love for justice, just like we can all affirm Jesus's love for those in the womb, life in the womb. So you do conversations on campus at Duke University and University of North Carolina. North Carolina, NC State, yeah, North Carolina Central. And I'm sure you get the question from students a lot, if God is really in control or if God is a good God and a loving God and a powerful God, why is there so much evil and suffering? You know, I think that's maybe one of the biggest questions that Mm. uh, skeptics have. And it's a, it's a great question. Uh, do you get that question a lot? And how do you respond to oh, it? Oh, oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, that is still one of the top two or three most asked questions by people that are struggling to believe is whether it's it's philosophical, you know, looking at the world, saying how could a good God be in charge of all this world of messed up chaos? Or sometimes it's really personal. You know, why did God let my mother die of cancer? Um, why did God let my parents get divorced? Why did God let my child get sick or, or struggle? And on our brief time together here, obviously, I you know can't really unpack all the nuances of that. Uh, it's one of the things I get in. It's one of the questions we deal with in a couple of ways in, in the book. But what you can say is that the Bible was written by people with that very question. Almost every one of the Bible writers, if you read them, were, were, was in a time of of struggle saying, God, if you really cared, why wouldn't you be doing more? Whether we're talking about David being on the run from Saul, most of the Psalms come out of that context. Whether we're talking about Job, uh, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the, the children of Israel as they struggle under the oppression of, of Babylon or the Philistines or whatever nation is oppressing them at the time. With the disciple wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah, why doesn't he end Roman oppression? And why doesn't he restore Israel to all of its glory? Um, whether it's, you know, the, the, the Paul in the epistles, you know, in prison saying Jesus is Lord, but he has appointed me to a path of suffering that almost all Bible writers have this question. And, and what they found was a reason to believe in spite of the suffering that was happening. They wanted to see that God, his goodness was expressed in the suffering. And that, you know, that, that even though I may not understand everything that God is doing, what I understand is that there is a God who is in charge of it, who sent his son to die on a cross, the ultimate act of injustice, and then rise from the dead you know, after it. And I know that if he was in charge then, if that's the demonstration of his love and his control, then I know that even in my chaos and my suffering, that he is also in control. The cross and the resurrection assure us that of all the things that we may not understand that God is or isn't doing in our life, the one thing we can be sure of is that it's not that he's absent or he's not in control because the cross and resurrection show us that that at every moment, even in the darkest moments, he is weaving his good plan for our salvation and his glory. I think of the book of Job and, you know, Job had a lot of questions for God and he really did question God's justice. And in the end, as you know really well, he didn't get his answers. He didn't get answers mm-hmm. to his specific questions, but he got more of God. Yeah. He wanted explanation. That's what he started at, at demanding explanation. But at the end, what God gives him is revelation. We want explanation. We want the reasons. But what God shows us is himself. 
and you say, I may not understand everything you're doing. I, I may not have, I just don't have the mental capacity to understand all the beautiful complexity of what God's doing. But what I can understand is who you are. And if I understand who you are, then I can trust what you're, you're doing. One of my favorite definitions of faith, and I discuss this in the book, is faith is, is sometimes accepting what you cannot understand based on what you can understand. And what I can understand is who God is based on how he revealed himself in the cross and resurrection. I understand that. And so when I can't understand all of his ways, I can understand who he is and I can trust him even when I can't quite understand So when you go on college campuses and you get questions from students, do they ask you, how could a loving God send people to hell? Mm. I mentioned a moment ago, the top two questions, two or three. The other one that I get a lot is the hell question. How could a loving God send people to hell? And that's what I struggle with for many years. You know, what I can, can say is this is an area, like I just said, that I, I may not understand and be able to explain everything, but I can understand who God is, his justice. You know, the Psalms say that his justice knows no end. It's higher than the heavens, that his righteousness far outweighs mine. And so God is never going to do anything unfair. And the other thing that, that I, I hold on to is that in every possible way the Bible teaches that if somebody goes to hell, it's not that it's not so much that God sends them as much as it is they send themselves. You know, as, as one, one famous uh, theologian said, hell is a door that is locked from the inside. It's the ultimate fulfillment of the prayer, God, not your will, but mine be done. To quote C.S. Lewis, you know, we either say to God, thy will be done, us talking to God, or God says to us, thy will be done. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if, if you want an eternity without me, then that's what you you will have. Ultimately, hell, what makes hell, hell is the absence of God. The total absence of God and all of his goodness. That is the eternal you know, lake of fire. It's eternal darkness. And if, if we choose in life, to say, I don't want God to be a part of my life. Ultimately, an eternity in hell is his answer to that. You say, as you wish, this is what you ask. This is what you have. It is a hard doctrine, but what really helps me is knowing God's heart. His heart is a passionate, beating heart of love. You know, Mm -hmm. God so loved the world and Jesus came and he poured out everything he had for us. And so even though he is a God of holiness and justice, and he gives us what we want, you know, his heart is love. His, he's the father in the prodigal son story who just does everything he can to get us to come to him. Yeah, what will amaze us when we get to heaven is not the severity of God's anger, but the, the magnanimity of his mercy. Every time somebody in the Bible is compared with God, some you know, Bible hero, God's mercy and his justice far exceeds theirs. So I, I may still struggle with even you know doctrines like hell. I believe them, but I may still struggle with them right now. But I know that when I get to heaven, emotionally, I'm not going to be saying, God, you weren't fair. God, you were harsh. What I'm going to be overwhelmed by is how good and kind and merciful he was, that he really was the God of the cross and the resurrection. You know, the biblical sexual ethic seems so outdated, J.D. I mean, this book has to be irrelevant. 
So prove to me that this word has some relevancy when it seems to me that it's just bigoted. <laughs> you know, I always tell college students to please don't be so arrogant as to think that we are the first generation in history to be offended by the Bible. Every generation, every culture, the Bible offends them in some countercultural way. I always say the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It's just, it offends you in different places in different ways. And it should not surprise us that according to the Bible story of, of mankind, the place, one of the places that our depravity, the depravity, the curse that came into our lives as a result of sin, one of the places that most affects us is in our, our sexuality. And I mean, that's not surprising because our, our sexuality is, is so deep in who we are. It's, it's in how we understand our world and how, you know, things that bring us joy. And so it's no surprise that our enemy uses that as one of his, his arenas of the greatest destruction that he, he brings on people. You know, without getting into all the nuances of why the Bible's sexual ethic is best, what I will, will say is that, is that we can trust that, that God, who designed it all from the beginning, from, from the beginning of creation has had our best interest in heart. It's not that the Bible has a low and embarrassed view of sexuality. It's that it recognizes the power. It recognizes how important this is to who we are in creation that says, this is why you got to trust me. You got to trust that I who designed male and female, I who designed the way this is supposed to work, that, that my way is best. And ultimately, ultimately you can trust me in it. Compare sex to like fire. You know, if, um, if I asked you right now, if you wanted fire in your home, your question back to me would be, well, it depends on where you want to put it. Mm -hmm. You know, fire in the fireplace is amazing. Fire in the couch, that's terrible. Well, in the same way, when it comes to things like sex, sexuality, um, in the right context, a man and a woman in covenant union for life, it's an amazing and beautiful thing. Outside of that context, it brings destruction. And God speaks about this with clarity, even if it's countercultural, because he cares about us so much. Ultimately, his instructions about sexuality are not restrictions as much as they are guidance given in love. Yes, it is simple to step outside of that guidance, but, but we, we, we need to see these as our Father, our Creator, giving us loving guidance because he wants us to flourish. Thanks for letting Barry and Shauna walk the real-life journey with you. The content from the Barry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Barry and Shauna mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.